0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest and it is filled Our conversation is filled with geeky goodness. Uh, Andrew Ang, head of factor investing at BlackRock, they run—I don't know—six point something trillion dollars. Ang is really a uh, born and bred uh, factor investor. Not only does he have a background in stats and finance from from um, Stanford, but he taught finance at Columbia, and the opportunity to put his theories. Into uh, actual practice at BlackRock just proved to be too tempting. He had to leave um, the theoretical practice of teaching and working at Columbia that he really enjoyed to give it a shot at BlackRock, and it's worked out uh, extremely well. If you are at all interested in quantitative investing, modeling, factor investing, anything remotely involved in the wonky, Goodness of mathematical theory and investing, you are going to love this conversation. So, with no further ado, my conversation with BlackRock's Andrew Ang. My extra special guest this week is Andrew Ang. He is the head of factor investing at BlackRock. The firm manages over $6 trillion. He comes to us with a PhD in finance and a master's degree in statistics from Stanford, and he is the author of a book called Asset Management, A Systemic Approach to Factor Investing. Andrew Ang, welcome to Bloomberg.
2: Thank you, Barry. It's a real pleasure to be here.
1: Uh, thanks for coming in. You have, you have a really fascinating background. You spend the first half of your career in academia. What made you decide to transition from theory to practice?
2: Indeed, I was a professor for 15 years at Columbia University and ended as chair of the Finance and Economics Division and was the Anne F. Kaplan Professor of Business. What's interesting is that my wife, she was born in China. Her parents have this long, very scholarly Confucian-style tradition, and the highest life form for them is a tenured professor at an Ivy League institution. And they thought I was absolutely crazy in leaving that and coming to industry. My parents, on the other hand, they didn't go to university. They actually really don't know still today what a professor does. Well, what do you mean you're not teaching? You mean you're on vacation? (laughs) Right. And they were really proud of me for getting a a real job. So (laughs) the disparity in the different attitudes. Well, one thing that was very interesting is my wife said to me, Andrew, you're a hypocrite. Because I used to feel that a lot of academics, and I was myself one, they're very theoretical, but they believe that the world should operate in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Of course, the way that they study the world. But they call, he she called me a hypocrite because actually, I believed so much that I accepted a job offer to come to BlackRock because I wanted to change the way that finance was practiced in accordance to the research and factors that I was doing.
1: So let's talk about that research a little bit. You have a background in statistics, you get a PhD in finance. That really lends itself to factor investing. That sort of quantitative approach is practically made for this. But I have to ask, from your research, how did you find your way to factor
2: investing? I was a professor and I did a lot of consulting while I was a a professor. And I had the privilege of working for some very large institutions including the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. And this is a very special fund. It's a trillion dollars today. It's multiple t- multiples times the country's GDP. And they went through some tough times in 2008, like many institutions. Mm-hmm. And I was tasked by the Ministry of Finance representing Parliament, together with two other academics, to take a deep look at the fund, to analyze it, to see where the losses were coming from, and to make recommendations. And what we found was that despite this fund owning tens of thousands of securities, dozens of active managers, what mattered at the end of the day were these factors, broad and persistent sources of returns. Macro factors like economic growth, real rates and inflation, which come through market cap indices Mm -hmm. and then relative to those market cap benchmarks style factors like value and momentum quality minimum volatility explain two-thirds of the variation of these active returns and so factors really mattered and it was entirely appropriate for norway to have these exposures to these factors that resulted in long-term superior returns
1: so so let me jump in right here and ask this you're you're reviewing a trillion dollar portfolio you're really separating the wheat from the chaff. You're identifying what the source of returns within that trillion-dollar portfolio is. Do, do the managers of the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund then turn around and say, we're going to re- move away from the parts of our portfolio that aren't performing and towards where our outperformance is coming from? Or do they consider that diversification and they leave it uh, as it was?
2: Norway has always used different sources of return, including fundamental analysis. Mm -hmm. And they continue to do that. But what we recommended, and they did adopt, was to take a very top-down, deliberate decision on these factors. And as a result, Norway started directly allocating to these factors to better understand their risks, to enhance their returns, and as you say, Barry, to... Improve their diversification. So,
1: so they seem to be pretty well versed in understanding the academic literature. But out in the real world, which is a fair statement to say, out in the rest of the real world, how does the way most people invest differ from from what's in the textbook? What What are the big uh, disparities between people who aren't the Norway sovereign wealth funds and and the average investor? What, what's the difference in their process and in their results?
2: Great question, Barry, because I actually think there are more similarities than differences. Really? But if you have to think about, you know, I used to be a professor and now you're a practitioner. What, what are these differences? Right. A lot of people talk about implementation shortfall and a lot of other jargon, the difference with transaction costs and stale prices or stale data. But actually, the real difference between academic and practice is you've got to work with a lot of people to get these things to fruition. And as a professor, you're sitting there in your office, you're sitting there by yourself often, and you just do your own thing. Right. But to make a difference, you have dozens of people and teams that you've got to partner with in order to make a product come until an advisor's shelf. Let's
1: talk a little bit about the best way to use factors. Are they designed to manage risk or are they designed to deliver market outperformance?
2: Well, yes, actually. (laughs) I think factors should be used in all facets of the investment process. We definitely need factors to look at really what drives our returns, so there Mm -hmm. is an angle for risk management, and I think your firm has uh, exemplified that, Barry. Mm -hmm. But we also would like to use factors to enhance our returns as well, and we can do that with value, quality, momentum, size, and combinations of these return-enhancing factors. We can also use factors to target specific outcomes, like minimizing our downside risk exposure through minimum volatility strategies. Factors can be used for all of these. And what's really exciting is that we can ask, what's the outcome you want to achieve? Perhaps it's greater diversification or Mm -hmm. portfolio resilience. And we will have some combination of factors that's right for you. So here's
1: the question that always comes up when I discuss factors with other people. It seems once everybody discovers a new idea, its power has a tendency to sort of fade away. Now that we know so much about factors, we know about value, we know about small cap, we know about quality, why hasn't that been arbitraged away? How is it that long-term factors still deliver uh, some degree of
2: outperformance? Ultimately, that's a question of who's on the other side. Mm -hmm. Because not everyone can buy cheap for every value stock that's cheap. There's got to be a stock that's relatively expensive. Right. The economic rationales behind all these factors are the same reasons why we think that these sources of returns are going to persevere for a long time. And there are three. There's a reward for bearing risk, a structural impediment, and investors' behavioral biases. So wait,
1: before we get to the first and the third one, which I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, tell me
2: about the second one. What is the structural impediment to buying cheap or buying quality? Well, for value, there is no structural impediment because you can buy cheap. Mm -hmm. But for minimum volatility, though, this is where structural impediments come in. And if we look at the United States, there are a large number of very large funds, a lot of public pension plans, but Mm -hmm. also other large institutions that have high total return targets, but a lot of restrictions on what they can do with their investment policies. Mm -hmm. Some of those institutions will gravitate to higher risk stocks in an attempt to meet those high total return targets mm-hmm. and then underweight the low volatility or low risk stocks. And mm-hmm. that gives rise to minimum volatility strategies. Now, if that structural impediment disappeared and suddenly all of those institutions had much more flexible investment policies, then perhaps we might see minimum volatility go away. But let's go to the first and third of those, mm-hmm. right? Well, well... What about the reward for bearing risk? And here I'll give value as an example since you uh, raised this uh, before.
1: Or small cap because I keep having discussions with people who insist that the small cap premium is all risk. And
2: I'm not sure how true that is. And uh, if I, it is largely risk that mm-hmm. we've shown. But that's a risk that you should be comfortable bearing and will result in the long term with compensated high returns. Mm-hmm. Now, value, a lot of value companies are a little bit old-fashioned. They often manufacture things or produce services. They're very good at that, often with a lot of fixed or physical capital. Mm-hmm. And when you get into a late economic cycle or an economic recession, it's very hard to change what your factory is currently manufacturing. Sure. And so not surprisingly, those value firms tend to underperform. Those fixed costs, all of that physical capital, give those value companies economies of scale. So they tend to perform the best coming out from the recessions and the recovery. Now, if you can't stomach these cyclical losses and value, absolutely no doubt has had a pretty rough ride of it over the past couple of quarters, Mm -hmm. consistent with where we are in the late economic cycle. If you can't stomach that underperformance, then, well, value's not for you, but for those who can bear those risks of short-term underperformance, you will be compensated with a long-term value premium. That's the reward for bearing risk. So
1: how long is long-term? Because since the 09 crisis ended, value has under, underperformed growth. That's a solid decade. We've been having an argument in my office. Is it one decade, two decades? It goes quite a while since value has consistently outperformed growth. What is the long-term for for a factor manifesting itself as alpha.
2: Yeah, these cycles can be three to five years. But over the last 10 years, value has outperformed. If we give a little bit of a story, coming into 2016, that was a really great year for value. Mm -hmm. In fact, particularly in the last part of the year, started before uh, Trump's election in in, in November. 2017, value was pretty much flat. And then 2018, there was tremendous underperformance it was until so the fourth bad.
1: quarter the fourth quarter That's true. value had a huge...
2: 2017 quarter 4 mm-hmm. and then through 2018 we saw those losses accelerate we find that 2018 to now where in may 2019 is the fourth worst value drawdown really fourth worst value drawdown in almost 100 years of data using the data set that starts in 1925, constructed by Nobel Prize-winning Gene Farmer and his longtime co-author, Kenneth French. Isn't that amazing? Fourth, fourth worst in Jordan. a century.
1: That, that's quite fascinating. Well, again, fourth quarter of 2018, when the market, S&P, fell about 20%, we saw value indexes do much better. They fell a little bit, but not nearly as much as the growth indices. The fang stocks got shellacked in the fourth quarter. But here we are, pretty close to near all-time highs, and it looks like growth has kind of caught up again. So is the expectation we're going to see some serious mean reversion in at some point in the not-too-distant future?
2: Well, I believe in value. I'm a value investor.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We do need to stay the course. Let's put that fourth worst drawdown in context. So it's not unprecedented. There are some worst times. And if we look at the top six to eight episodes of really bad value performance. They're characterized by an environment like what we've had late economic cycle, mm-hmm. except our cycle today has perhaps been very prolonged to be in this late stage. And I mean, I think that's a separate macro Post-financial credit crisis, exactly. Fed
1: intervention, etc. Yeah, accommodated monetary policy and all the
2: rest of that. Uh, we also see some very severe recessions. There are two episodes in the 1930s as well. that mm-hmm. are, uh, But the worst one is the late 1990s, Mm -hmm. in fact, 1999. And we're about half as bad as 1999. So let's talk a little bit about fixed income investors. Are they actually beginning to use factors now? They are. And we've just introduced a few fixed income factor ETFs. That's part of the next evolution is pushing these time-tested concepts of like buying cheap and finding higher quality names, finding trends, but pushing that from where it's been mostly equities to Mm -hmm. fixed income and then to other multi-asset applications like currencies and commodities, and then also to go invest in a long, short manner as well. And fixed income, it's right there at the frontier.
1: So when I think of factor investing, I think of cap size and I think of quality and I think of price, namely value. Are you creating parallel versions of this For um, bonds, I mean, are are bonds cheap or expensive as a function relative to um, the combination of their credit quality and their uh, forward expected cash flow based on will this default or not? How do you determine value? Or is it yield relative to to what the 10-year treasury is doing?
2: All of these factors are broad and persistent, so they are seen in many different areas. But you do need some research to apply it in these different asset classes so value it's all about buying cheap relative to intrinsic Mm -hmm. right what's intrinsic or fundamental value for a bond and so we can measure or apply value by looking at the yield of a bond well that's equivalent to price right but we might now have intrinsic value versus a forward rate curve Mm -hmm. or versus an option adjusted spread for example Uh, but we can apply the same concepts price or yield relative to a measure of intrinsic value.
1: How does how does the risk-free um, treasury fit into figuring out what value is for a bond?
2: The risk-free rate operates across these different asset classes, and it's a base rate. It's mm-hmm. sort of like the opportunity cost. Instead of parking your money in the bank, well, we're now going to take risk and we're going to be rewarded for it. So it's common across asset classes. Now, the risk-free rate, though, in fixed income gives you a term structure. Mm -hmm. And that term structure will translate into different factor strategies. So some people will talk about curve or roll down. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's certainly a part of uh, income investing or carry. We can also talk about risk-free rates affecting different countries. And so now we think of an an international version of uh, fixed income factor investing as well.
1: Since we're talking about fixed income investing, there's now about $12 trillion of bonds that carry a negative yield. Here, I'm going to lend you money and I'm going to pay you to hold my cash for me. How does that figure into factor investing for, for bonds? And,
2: and what does this say about the world of the cost of capital? I am almost guilty, really, because a lot of academics spent an enormous amount of time writing down very complicated models to ensure that interest rates remain positive. Right. And what are they now? They're they're not positive. It's almost like all of that literature could have been uh, thrown out. But so, more seriously, mm-hmm. more seriously, what's really relevant here is the real rate rather than the nominal,
1: relative to inflation,
2: relative to inflation. Mm-hmm. And there we've seen many episodes of negative real rates. And some of them, I've I've uh, worked with some co-authors. In papers about. The second is that if we think about the negative yield, is that you invest in bonds and you're going to lose money. Mm -hmm. But we've had debt consolidations, we've had demonetizations, confiscations in the past. In the United States, we've actually seen some wealth destruction in the 1930s. We had a ban on individuals holding gold, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a near money substitute, or at least it was at the time because we were on the gold standard. So these negative yielding in a much broader context, it's actually we've had these episodes before. Factors will continue to have a place in this period. I think you still want to buy cheap. You still want to find these trends. You want higher quality names. Probably that's more important. Uh, than ever. And you want to have portfolio resilience and we can hold a combination of factors to help these investors.
1: So you mentioned the evolution of factors and the evolution of new products. What, What do you see coming down the pike? What sort of stuff? We've been hearing for a long time about these 130-30 portfolios, these long short ETFs. What are the next things that factor investing is going to drive from the product side?
2: We talked about some of these already, pushing out these concepts from equities to fixed income and other multi-asset classes. But I think the real gains will come from applying data and technology to the mom and dad sitting across the table from a financial advisor. Mm-hmm. And my vision is that if you're having that conversation with an individual and that individual says, I'm really worried about losing my job. Right? They're making a statement about economic growth. hmm And we can have some factors to help hedge that bad outcome. What's a day in the life of Andrew Ang like? Yeah, what does that mean? Leading factor investing at BlackRock means I talk with a lot of people. I have the privilege of working with some really talented people. And I feel like a little kid in a candy store because there's all this great data and technology at BlackRock and we can put things to work and introduce new products and make it happen and have some factor analytics, data and technology, all based on factors as well.
1: So let's talk a little bit about your book. This is a serious um, quantitative uh, work. Tell us how the book came about and uh, who's it for?
2: I wrote the book uh, after working for several large sovereign institutions, sovereign wealth funds, sovereign pension plans. And I talked all about factors and I wanted to bring all of that knowledge that just even a decade, two decades ago, were only available to really large, sophisticated institutions, mm-hmm. and I wanted to democratize access. In fact, that's our mission statement. It's to democratize the broad and persistent, democratize access to factors. And this book really put into context, with case studies based on some of those, uh, some of those institutions, how to use factors in, in portfolios.
1: So you said factors plural, Um, And you mentioned Jean Fama before. So the original Fama-French model was three Three factors. factors. Right. Then then we got the five-factor model, then the seven-factor model. And some people have made the claim that, and I'm a little skeptical that most of these are of of really significant value, that there are 400 or 500 factors. Some people have said 1,000 factors. How many factors are there and how many really can be implemented?
2: There are half a dozen macro factors and half a dozen style factors. Macro factors drive returns across asset classes. The big three are economic growth, real rates, and inflation. Mm -hmm. And they explain about 85% of the variation of returns across these different asset classes, even in private markets. Give us those three again. Economic growth, Mm -hmm. real rates, and inflation. Those are the big three. And within... Each different asset class. Within equities, we can find pockets of securities that over the long run have resulted in higher risk adjusted returns, those securities that are cheap or high quality that we talked about Mm -hmm. earlier. And we can find those same patterns in bonds and in commodities. We can even find them in private markets like private equity and real estate. Mm -hmm. Those are style factors and they operate within an asset class. And in equities, we think of value, quality, Momentum, size, and minimum volatility. Now, the criteria for these, and why there's only like half a dozen macro, half a dozen style, there's four criteria that whittles down the potential hundreds or thousands to just these narrows just this narrow set. The first is that economic rationale that we talked about earlier: mm-hmm. reward for bearing risk, structural impediment, or behavioral bias. We want very long histories. And that removes basically most of this. Really? Now, a, lot of these, a lot of these don't, don't have- Don't have decades worth of history. And mm-hmm. we would like that so that it informs how we can build those strategies and offer them. We want differentiated returns, particularly with respect to market cap benchmarks. Right? What is it giving us that's, that, that is different? And then finally, we want, and this is a choice for BlackRock, we want to be able to offer these in scale. So that means we can pass on low costs to our clients. After imposing all those four criteria, we're only left with that half a dozen macro, half a dozen stuff. Hmm,
1: quite interesting. So, so what is next in factor land? Are there any yet undiscovered factors out there that might fall into either of these um, two half dozen groups? Or have we pretty much squeezed all the juice out of the orange at this point?
2: There's always continued development. But I think it's a little bit like Shakespeare. You know, mm-hmm. wrote some great plays and sonnets back in Elizabethan times, did that with Quill and Ink. Right. Right. We still have, well, he will be writing screenplays today, mm-hmm. right? Perhaps we have some streaming TV and other things like that, but there's still character and plot. But it's right. done in different forms. And we want to evolve buying cheap, finding trends. So the implementations, of course, will change. We can do this better with more efficient data and technology to lower transaction costs. We would also like to see how we can use them in portfolios, factor analytics, factor allocation that I talked about earlier. That's really what's new. But we're always going to have these half-dozen macro and half-dozen style.
1: So you wrote a white paper that um, I, I want to wonk out about a bit. The title was, What Does the Yield Curve Tell Us About GDP Growth? And there's a professor at the um, university at Duke University who has a recession forecasting model, which has a perfect track record, or at least in the limited time it's existed, it's been perfect. The fourth factor in his model is the inverted yield curve. He uses the five year and the three month. Um, and only when it's inverted for a substantial period of time, which in his measurement is 90 days, a full quarter, Last week, we passed that. We've already been inverted for that period of time. So I'm curious about what you found, what the yield curve means for future GDP growth. He suggests it's an indicator of a recession 12 to 18 months later. What, what did you find?
2: The yield curve has a lot of information about future economic activity. And there's always been a slowdown after a negative uh, there's after. always been a slowdown uh, following a negative yield curve. Meaning Around after an two inversion? Two to six quarters afterwards, mm-hmm. meaning an inversion. There's been actually one false positive, and that's in the late 1960s, but there was still a slowdown in that period. Now, that's an old paper, Baron, uh, that you brought up. And we actually showed that in addition to the term spread, back when the negative term spread forecasting poor economic activity the level of the interest rate was also pretty important too. And interest rates are fairly low now, Mm -hmm. and they've actually decreased over the last couple of months around Mm -hmm. the world. The level of that yield curve also uh, forecasts uh, slowdowns.
1: So it's not just the inversion, but an inversion from a relatively low uh, level also has a negative connotation? Well, both
2: the level, low levels Predict slowdowns and spreads, negative spreads also predict slowdowns. So, so why
1: would low levels predict a slowdown? Is it a function of demand for capital that's used by an expanding economy, or something else?
2: There's uh, several explanations here. I'll just give uh, one by John Taylor. Mm-hmm. Right, the Taylor rule. When uh, is that? Is that still in effect? I thought we sort of uh, didn't didn't it, we repeal the Taylor rule? We've uh, used <laughs> it as the basis for many different policy and macro models just perhaps not in its purest form. Okay. Thank you, John Taylor, 1993. But it's gone through various iterations and I think the intuition is still sound. Policymakers generally will raise interest rates when we're in very good times, right? Inflation tends to pick up there and we want to take the punch ball away. During bad times, policymakers tend to lower interest rates to stimulate economic activity. And all these types of policy interactions will give rise to when bad times come, Mm -hmm. interest rates tend to be lower. So that
1: sounds a little bit like policymakers are engaging in a little bit of market timing themselves. Let's talk about another paper of yours where you look at factor timing and time series. Can an investor use factors as part of a market timing approach? Are there better or worse times for some factors or... Should it just be full-factor diversification across the board?
2: That's a paper we just published in the Journal of Portfolio Management not so long ago.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Investors should start with a long-term strategic combination to lots of factors. Mm-hmm. Don't hold just one. If you hold just value, well, I felt it, you felt it. Right. Over the last couple of quarters, it's been painful.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We want lots of factors for diversification. But around that long-term strategic multi-factor combination, we might think about tilting. And I like the word tilting rather than the word timing because sometimes timing has these connotations of really short-term global macro stuff. All in and, in, and out. Yeah, out that's not yeah. what we're about. But around those strategic benchmarks, you might tilt. And the paper gives a framework to think about how to do that. So first, factors become rich or cheap, just like every asset. So wait, so within
1: within let's say the value factor, which is looking at stocks that might be expensive or cheap, there are times when that factor
2: itself is expensive or cheap. That's correct.
0: So and
1: it's a second derivative removed once from the underlying cheapness well, of the equity. Well,
2: it's now going to blow your mind because that's true for momentum. Momentum also has really? momentum too. So fact, momentum has value, momentum. There are value, momentum, of value, and momentum. In fact, value, momentum of each factor. But there's that's one... by the way.
1: That's the most interesting thing I've heard today. I just have to share that with you. Now, that that each of these have a derivative that is reflective. It's almost like a Mandelbrot <laughs> reflexivity, um...
2: or higher level mm-hmm. uh, meta factor, if you mind.
1: Meta factor. Okay. Yeah. Oh,
2: but there, so there are value and momentum effects. We'll call that uh, second one relative strength because mm-hmm. we want to measure sure. these trends of these factors uh, to each other.
1: I know that stocks can be cheaper or more expensive at different times, but I always assumed, hey, the bottom least expensive, let's call it third of stocks, is always going to be cheaper than everything else. I never stopped to think that, sure, they're, they're relatively inexpensive, but on an absolute basis, cheap stocks can be expensive. That's, that meta value is really quite fascinating. H- how do you incorporate that into what you do?
2: Barry, that's such a really deep comment that you've just made, because value is always cheap. So what do you mean about using value for value? So what we really mean here is if we take the value factor, how cheap is value currently relative to how cheap it's been in the past? Its own history. Its own history, Mm -hmm. right? And then we can also compare how cheap value is to other factors. And if you're a quant, you would call this a time series and cross-sectional score. Right. And that also applies to relative strength or momentum because momentum, by definition, the momentum factor always has the most momentum. Right. So what you really mean here is what's the current trend of momentum relative to the past trends that momentum has had? Mm-hmm. And then what's the relative strength of my given factor relative to the trends of other factors? Mm-hmm. Again, it's this time series and cross-sectional comparison. So components. in other
1: words, it's which factor is... Doing the best relative to other factors.
2: That's right. And so we actually put all these, and one of the, uh, you talked about a bit before about the frontiers of of factor investing, is factor investing is really about taking active insights. Mm -hmm. Things like value and momentum, but we can also apply them in other active ways. Factor tilting is one
0: of those. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting, you can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers.
1: So let's talk about that because – Years ago, there were a number of models that came out, and they didn't do factor tilting. They tried to do sector tilting. They would rotate within the S and P 500, within the different groups. They would go from technology to healthcare um, to to finance, and they always sounded great on paper. And then in the real world, they didn't do so well. So, on a on an, on this sort of factor tilting model. How can you capture in real time those benefits? Aren't you always going to be lagging? What do you use as a signal to say, all right, now's the time to overemphasize cap as opposed to quality? Or is there too much of a lag to capture that? Or do you get enough of a heads up? Hey, here's the direction this is shifting. You can move some of the portfolio quickly enough to take advantage of it.
2: Well, I believe all types of tilting, they're hard. And factor tilting, it's hard too. Mm -hmm. But done in a disciplined way, there's a couple of differences to country or sector rotation. So they're nice complements. So often we like to apply factors within a particular sector Uh or within a particular region. And so that gives room for factor rotation to sit side by side with these others. Second is that exposure to sectors over the long run, in fact, actually the CAPM works fine. There are some academic papers on that too. If we take a strategic portfolio that buys cheap, finds trends, finds high quality names, right? All those factors, those are long-term determinants of performance. Whereas static sector exposure, well, actually the market has sectors, might as well do that. But these factors, the strategic tilt gives you an uplift over the long run in and of, of itself. And then around that, you might incrementally add returns with the factor rotation. And a third difference, I think, is that with these factors, we can employ them in different ways. Mm-hmm. So we want to do this transparently. We have this paper. We've introduced some some products. We want to be active with factors. Let's not just use one signal. Let's look at definitely at how cheap something is. We talked about relative strength mm-hmm. as well. We'll use the economic regime, measures of the opportunity set or dispersion, but we want to use all of those insights together.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
2: so let's talk about something, um,
1: not market timing, but factor tilts, if I had could have my way, I would, at the end of a recession, lean as heavily towards growth as I could. Not always easy to do. Everybody is miserable. No one wants to hear you in March 09 say, okay, now's the time to buy the growth stocks um, that have done nothing f- but get killed for the past two years. And towards the end of the cycle, and that assumes you know when the end of the cycle is in advance typically we don't know till after the fact, gradually move that tilt away from growth towards value. Because if your charge is you must be fully invested at all times on the equity side, the assumption is that in any sort of recession, be it a mild recession or something like 0809 or 2000 to 02, you're going to see growth get shellacked and value is going to hold up much better. And I can't help but recall hearing 97, 98, 99, this Warren Buffett guy is washed up. That sort of value crap is never going to work again. And as people said, that was really when he began another period of huge outperformance. So first, is that something that you can accomplish with tilts? And second, how do you get the timing right? At the end of a uh, market crash, it's pretty clear that, um, when you're closer, let's, let's say closer to the end than the beginning, um, so whether it was January 09 or June 09, anywhere in that range, you're, you're, pretty clo- you're, you're much closer to the end of that than the beginning. How, how does one make that determination that we want to tilt towards growth here and here's how to do it, and then at the other end of the cycle, hey, we want to tilt more towards value here and here are the signals that send us? How, how would one do that?
2: Let's remember first diversification, diversification, diversification. That's the key. Okay. Right? So you have it's both really growth hard and value. to I think to 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 call anything with precision or make decisions about of individual course. factors or any type of investment. Diversification is that key, and that provides that long-term strategic benchmark. Mm-hmm. But around that, if you have the risk tolerance and the capability, and be active with factors, then we'd like to use information about how cheap a given factor is. Uh We'll see if the factor is trending up right, versus trending down. In fact, value has been trending down over the past couple of of quarters. But value is cheap today. We'd also like to see where we are in the economic cycle. The fact that we're in that late stage where we said that value firms tend to underperform, Mm -hmm. that's not very favorable to value. We also look at dispersion. Dispersion for value, it's okay, but it doesn't scream like it's a it's a big buy. We use all of those together, and then we'll have an aggregate view on these different factors. Hmm.
1: Quite quite interesting. There were a few other questions I wanted to get to before we get to our standard um, question. We we mentioned value stocks underperforming. I saw something recently that said they've underperformed for 25, 30, 35 years. Is that remotely no, correct? No, it, well, that, that seems wrong, doesn't it? Even in fact, I mean,
2: they've outperformed them in the last 10 years. But there have been difficult periods. In uh,
1: under the past, dec- past decade, yeah. growth has outperformed value. Uh,
2: in the past decade, actually, value done quite well.
1: Value since '09. But
2: value, yes, value over the past uh, two years has suffered.
1: Okay, that's interesting, though. I, I, I have looked at value as, uh, let me rephrase that, I've looked at growth as doing exceedingly well since the end of the financial crisis. Think about Amazon at $8 and Apple at $12 or whatever their prices were, and they've all exploded. And I guess they're categorized as growth, although with those prices, you could really call those value stocks. Oh, you know, you? that's
2: a great, a great uh, point. Uh, it, it echoes one of the topics that I wrote about uh, recently in, in my blog, uh, Andrew's Angle, and it's growth is not the opposite of value all right and we kind of use the word well certainly value for cheap right we've used the word growth to denote expensive but actually there's two other connotations of growth which are quite distinct from the opposite of value mm-hmm. i mean the first one is that a lot of growth managers will search for trends mm-hmm. and you'd actually like to, a trend to be sustainable And that's an aspect of momentum investing. Right. And that's rewarded over the long run. Another aspect of growth is something that you alluded to is like, what's the quality actually behind that? And indeed, if you look at many growth funds, certainly they will load, many of them, on momentum and uh, quality factors. Growth itself is not the opposite of value, but I think you don't want to buy expensive. Mm -hmm. If a stock does uh, tend to be uh, more expensive. That is not value. It might be justifiable because it might have aspects of quality or momentum in there.
1: So when you are defining something as a growth stock or a value stock, you know my frame of reference is there's the S and P five hundred growth group and the S and P five hundred value group, and never the twain shall meet. But I suspect you might take issue. With some of the stocks they call growth and some of the stocks And I think it's a little
2: bit more nuanced. Uh, I would call the first generation exactly just splitting the thing into two. And today we would think a little bit harder. And many stocks will have aspects of multiple factors within that same stock.
1: So let's talk a little bit about backtesting. We're really going to go deep into the weeds here. Um, It seems that a lot of backtests show these great returns for different combinations of factors and then implementing them in the real world becomes challenging. You mentioned the problems with organizations and getting everybody pulling in the same direction. Um, But there have been instances of small um, hedge funds, quantitative hedge funds that try to implement these. And uh, Momentum is a perfect example. Momentum has some real application in real portfolios but it seems the backtests are always much better than the actual implementation. What is it about momentum and some of these other factors that makes it so challenging to capture what theory says in practice?
2: Momentum has pretty high turnover.
1: So All it's... momentum
2: funds run at turnover uh, above 100%, significantly mm-hmm. above. Wow. And because of that, transaction costs are crucial. So you see some research in the literature that says, actually, we can't really do momentum in practice, and some others that will say, well, if you're very good at transaction costs uh, optimization, and you have access to transaction cost minimization in your execution, then momentum uh, will be a a favorable and and profitable uh, factor. So it's really key that you have to really look at the details once you implement a factor.
1: The devil is always in the details. Let, let's let's look at another one. Theoretically, high beta stocks should do really well, but your research in as implemented at BlackRock has found low volatility stocks have done well. Why is it that the high beta stocks aren't capturing those gains once you have a portfolio impl- implementation? It's the low vol stocks that seem to be doing better.
2: Yeah, and this is a paper that I wrote in the 2000s. And this paper, I'm lucky and very fortunate, has played a really important role in building out the minimum volatility and factor industry more broadly. And you've hit on the key note here that in theory, we should have higher risk stocks, should have higher returns. But actually, we found the opposite. And in the paper, my co-authors and I said, the high-risk stocks have, quote, abysmally low returns, unquote. Abysmal? Abysmally low. Wow. And if we rank stocks based on risk, and we did this by volatility, idiosyncratic and total volatility in the paper, subsequent papers did this by beta or downside risk Mm -hmm. measures, the general pattern is that stocks have the same expected return, and then as the volatility increases, there's a very steep drop-off In returns for the very highest risk stocks. And that's actually this low volatility effect. If you construct a portfolio of minimum volatility, and you can do that by holding low beta stocks or stocks with low idiosyncratic risk or both, you form a portfolio of low volatility that gives you the same return over the long run as the market, but it does so with reduced risk. The Sharpe ratio is high, not because of the numerator. Of the higher expected return, right. but it's because of the decrease in the denominator, the reduced risk.
1: So if someone were to come to me and say, listen, I could give you market returns, but much lower drawdowns, much lower volatility, of course I'm going to say I want some of that. If you're not going to get outperformance for the same um, volatility, well, the same performance for less volatility, that seems like it's much more livable for the average investor.
2: And I think that's one of the great benefits for minimum volatility strategies, it just helps an investor stay the course. Mm -hmm. So you're not subject to those tremendous swings, particularly on the downside. And we can mitigate some of that downside risk with these minimum volatility strategies. Upside downside capture ratios for minimum volatility, all right? It's all about trying to uh, participate in as few as possible of these drawdowns. It's around 50% downside and 80% upside for these downside upside risk capture ratios.
1: That's really quite interesting. Um, So one of the questions I mentioned to somebody, I was speaking to you, and they asked a really interesting question. Do you consider factor indexes to be closer to the active spectrum or closer to the passive end of the spectrum? Where, Where do you put factor investing on that continuum from active to passive?
2: Oh, this is another one of these, uh, yes questions. (laughs) That's right. I, you know, this is a bugbear of mine. I have to say, Barry, is that everything is active and it's just a a question of greater (sighs) or lesser degrees.
1: I I totally agree. I, I've. Ex- written and discussed hmm. that even the basic S and P 500, somebody made a decision. That's right. That's a bunch of active decisions it's about be what's in market there. Market cap rated, and where do you draw the right. wh- And what's, what's the line? free float? Right. And
2: what gets in there? That's right. right. And then, well, do you use the S and P 500 versus some other index? Right. And then, you know, when we go to other asset classes, you know, it's almost all active implementation. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think uh, I would like to rephrase that question, if I may. Please. On uh, the difference between index or average, mm-hmm. right? and then taking um, deviations from there. Sure. And in this context, factors are absolutely active. We're tilting towards broad and persistent sources of returns. We don't want to hold a market cap portfolio. would favor overweighting stocks that have low prices relative to uh, intrinsic value. Those stocks that are trending up, right? Those stocks mm-hmm. with high quality earnings. And those are active decisions, but we're doing it in a transparent way. It's low cost. We can put it into an easy to access fund, right? And we can put these insights into multiple asset classes too.
1: So you keep referencing this is being done in a transparent way. Why is that important? Because I look at places like D.E. Shaw or Renaissance Technologies that have generated outperformance for decades, they're not transparent. Those are their secret sauce that goes into their alpha generation. Why does BlackRock feel we're creating something and we want to be completely transparent
2: in this product? I believe in active. I believe in alpha. And I define these factors as broad. You see them in many places. And persistently rewarded. We've got decades of academic research behind so, it. So is this a peer-reviewed approach to investing? Now- Alpha is actually not broad and persistent, Mm -hmm. right? Requires specialized skills like the firms that you've talked about. Our firm too will use sophisticated techniques with big data and machine learning. You could have a fundamental approach that knows a lot about just a few stocks, right? Mm -hmm. The complete opposite of broad. And those, when you find those skills, you should reward them. Sometimes you might be able to generate alpha insights by taking advantage of very short-term high frequency market dislocations. When we find that skill, we should pay up for it. But those things that have been in the literature for decades, that have been well studied, that the game is all about implementation and efficiency. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think we should be paying very expensive fees for that. We should be giving control to the client. We should be paying less and getting more. And that's where factors come in.
1: So, So where does the transparency on some of these new models come in? why share your findings as opposed to keeping
2: it secret we believe in sharing Mm -hmm. and we know that these factors are going to endure because of that economic rationale right there's always going to be that reward for bearing risk unless these structural impediments get removed they're going to be there and investors well they're going to be investors there's going to be these behavioral biases right as long as these economic rationales endure these factors are going to be with us. They're gonna be cyclical, absolutely. So sometimes there might be room for factor tilting, but these factors are going to be with us for decades to come. And let's share this and democratize access to all of this, that's our purpose. And we can do that so that you understand what's inside, how we exactly buy cheap. And we wanna make sure that you see it. So sometimes you might want to have position level information available. It helps you fit that with the rest of your portfolio or integrate it with data and technology, and you might have better risk management.
1: I think that approach is unusual. Not a lot of firms the size of BlackRock are comfortable sharing their research, although I guess BlackRock could say, hey, we're so big. We're so efficient. Here. Here's the secret sauce you can never do this as cheaply as we could anyway so i'm that's my words i'm not i don't mean to put words to your well we've your
2: always mouth. put the client first uh, so
1: but you got i mean not to the clients to competitors to other people who might say oh here's a new paper from blackrock let's see if we can find something to implement from this i find it to be atypical although i guess that's not lots of firms publish white papers lots of firms do that so maybe i'm overemphasizing the transparency aspect of it. I just find that intriguing that the secret sauce from a particular group of funds you guys are that open with. And I guess
2: I think Well I think maybe you would agree with my wife when she called me a hypocrite because I'm i I'm the ultimate true believer.
1: There you go. So so that makes a lot of sense to me. So let me jump to my favorite questions. This is our speed round and we ask this of all our guests. Um, let's start with a simple question. What was the first car you've ever owned, year, make,
2: and model? Toyota Corolla, 1983, 1. 1.6 liter, Ooh. kind of maroon color, which was really fortunate because the amount of rust in there, you kind of...
1: <laughs> you couldn't see could, it. Yeah. <laughs> they always made good cars, but in the early days, that was a very thin metal, and it did... It was a rust bucket. Right. It, it happened a lot. I remember those. I drove
2: that car across Australia. Really? Um, where are you originally from? I was born in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the late 1960s and early 1970s, uh, Malaysia went through a series of race riots, and my parents wanted somewhere safe to raise their family. And the White Australia policy ended, and that was actually the official name of the policy White it or Australia not, policy. It was ended by Gulf Whitlam, Australian Prime Minister, in 1973. And we were one of the first Asian families after the White Australia policy to move to Perth. And I remember growing up, I was the only non-white kid in class, right. and I was really different. kind of marked my whole worldview. Um, factors really are all about sure. looking through and being different too. Right. I did well in school. I was so thankful for, um, for the opportunities that, that were given to me. And, and then you know, I ended up in the U.S. for, for graduate school. I uh, got to work on a Scandinavian portfolio as a professor and you know now I'm, I'm like every other person who lives in New York City. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's so That's so interesting. So I was going to ask you a question what's the most important thing we don't know about you but I suspect you may. I uh, don't know I'm, it.
2: A, I'm a musician.
1: Oh really? So, so I, what I do play you play?
2: I play the piano. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I'm a classical pianist. I used to play the violin but I've always loved the piano more. I've Played in a few black rock corporate bands, so I'm trying to expand my musical genres o- away, from I play the towards, away from classical towards.
1: Yeah. So, have you ever done like full classical? Um, I've uh, concertos. Have you played for audiences? Uh, uh, how
2: far did your music career take? Yes, you? I can play those. Really? That doesn't mean I'm very good at it, <laughs> but I, I love I love playing.
1: So, so tell us about some of your mentors who
2: helped uh,
1: develop the way you think about markets.
2: I, I'd like to answer that in two ways. So, the, the first one is like, who do I model myself on in BlackRock running a business mm-hmm. and trying to change the world with, with factors? And that person is Walt Disney. Really? It's not an investor. But if we look at Walt Disney, he didn't invent animated films, he didn't invent amusement parks, right? Or people dressed up in, uh, in different characters. But what he did, he brought all of those together and he just by integrating all that created something new. And that's mm-hmm. actually what factors are doing too. We didn't invent buying cheap. Right. Right? We didn't invent momentum. But bring all those together with daring technology, yes, we can remake the world and give people a better experience.
1: Interesting. Uh, uh, just a footnote, <laughs> I was at Disneyland 2 weeks ago. It's the first time I've ever gone to any Disney property and it's quite the experience to in your 50s experience a Disney park for for the first
2: time for all ages. It is the happiest place <clears throat> on earth. <laughs> and,
1: and I basically any ride I don't care fast upside down doesn't matter. I'm I'm right there and we had a blast. It was absolutely
2: you could see why.
1: Oh, now I kind of get Disney. This makes a lot of sense. But for um, the other mentors,
2: yeah, uh, you know i I was pretty nerdy, as you can tell. Uh, and one of the wait, nerdy? <laughs> I, I, I have not noticed. <laughs>
1: in this book on quantitative factor <laughs> investing. The 850-page right, title. I did not notice anything nerdy <laughs> here at all.
2: Uh, and um, when I was in school, uh, high school, I got to go to National Mathematics Summer School. And that was just an eye-opener for me that there were people kind of like me that liked math. And it, it, it really changed my life. So let's talk a little bit about
1: investors. Who influenced your approach to investing? Who were the folks that really shaped your investing worldview?
2: If any reader or listener out there hasn't read uh, Graham and Dodd, mm-hmm. Security Analysis, like those were two professors at the institution I taught at for many years, Columbia University, you got to read that book. It's the basis for value. Quality is in there because they teach us that in order to estimate intrinsic value, you got to use the more permanent components of earnings, sure. things that are we use in quality today. I have to mention... Uh, Bogle. Uh, when I met him for the first time, he he um, actually was citing some things out of my book, particularly that chapter on uh, governance or agency theory. And one other person is Joel Grinblatt, just to look at oh, sure. how to look at a systematic approach to, uh, to some of Gotham these Gotham Capital.
1: Yeah, he's a very interesting guy. So let's talk about books. What are some of your favorite books, be they market-related, not fiction, nonfiction? What what have you enjoyed reading?
2: I like reading uh, popular science books. Okay. Uh, my most recent one is by Simon Gomery and called The uh, Soul of an Octopus. I love that uh, book. Amazing creatures, right? And they just look so alien, but they're emotional, very really intelligent. Like they're more like us than we think. I'm going to tell you
1: something. I read that book and I stopped eating octopus afterwards. It basically, and I eat pretty much everything except cauliflower. And Brussels sprouts. That book is the first thing I've ever read. I that try said, not to
2: eat Brussels sprouts either.
1: <laughs> I can't. I can't eat octopus anymore. They, they're just too intelligent and too soulful.
2: One of the things about popular science books that I like is, even for the areas that I'm familiar with, and in, in some cases, uh, you would say, uh, you know, beat in the weeds with uh, mm-hmm. in the research, you always learn something from them because the best ones just present information in a new way, or they just open up your frontier completely, 100%. Uh, like like the Simon Comrie book.
1: 100%. Give, give us another.
2: Uh, I think, um, uh, like uh, some popular books on number theory. Okay. Uh, and just physics and sciences in general.
1: Let, let's hear some titles.
2: Well, one of them is uh, Moonshot. It's about the um, uh, American um, the Apollo space mission? race. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, It's an amazing book as well moonshot that's um, who wrote that I can't remember the full title right now we can... let, let,
1: let's have Google rescue us while
2: uh, <laughs> and then you can mention it
1: Moonshot. and we'll edit this out uh, and I have to it, it's a pretty
2: long title in so, fact that soul of an octopus is a pretty long title too <laughs> so
1: I by the way while I'm while I'm looking for this I recommended that book to my friend David Nottig, who sent sent me that book and said, thanks for the recommendation. That book made me cry. There's another one uh, like, by Franz Moonshot, what a landing on the moon teaches yeah, us yeah. about see, collaboration. Yeah, yeah, see, that's not what I, that's why I don't remember Richard Wiseman.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's another one very, very similar to Simon Montgomery's book too, called uh, by Franz de Rune called, uh, I think, Mama's Hug, Mama's Last Hug. It's about um, Mama's Last it's Hug. A, it's about huh. uh, the great apes and their their intelligence and emotional really? capacity. Um, you might enjoy that one too.
1: If, if you, I'm going to put that one, on, I put all these on my list, but if, if you like that, have you ever read Last Ape Standing? No. So it's basically about the 30 or so proto-human species that had come out. You know, you know Cro-Magnon, you know Neanderthal, but you don't know there's 30 others and how close they all came to being wiped out in the Ice Age and how... This particular species. Last Ape Standing. Last Ape Standing. Right. The, um, the, the Homo sapiens ended up being the ones who who survived and, and eventually took over. But if you're at all interested in nonfiction, I always recommend that book. Thank you. I've, I've found that delightful. All right, so we have three books. Let's jump to um, Failure. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience.
2: I turned up uh, at grad school. I went to Stanford, and I did pretty well my undergrad. Won a university medal, wrote a dissertation, you know, Dunning-Kruger kind of effect. And you get to grad school. That's high-level Dunning-Kruger. Such a humbling experience. (laughs) I did so badly. I thought about withdrawing. I had to take all these uh, classes in the statistics department. That's actually why I have this uh, Master's of Science in Statistics, was just because I was in... Um, the remedial program to take all these extra things that I should have known before I entered my degree. Really? That was a really humbling experience.
1: So that's very high-level Dunning-Kruger uh, metacognition. I, I experienced that in college. It's like uh, high school was easy. You get to college, and suddenly it's like, oh, these people are really smart, and they work really hard. I can't just, you know, phone it in. I, I don't know what your experience was like in grad school, but it was, in hindsight, pure Dunning-Kruger.
2: What did I learn? Is um, you can't do it on your own. So I thank everyone of my class: Jun and Jun, Mark, Maria, Eric. Without you, I could not have got through my homeworks and got that gotten through.
1: Wow, that's that's quite interesting. So, what do you do for fun? What do you do when you're not crunching numbers and working on? Of course, I play the piano. That's that's (laughs) your that's your release. That's your stress release. That's my stress release. Sitting at a keyboard and just working your way through a grand. Master's composition.
2: Well, right now I'm also uh, trying to do Pilates. Uh, I'm very, very stiff, so my goal is to try to touch my toes.
1: <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, tell us what you're most optimistic and pessimistic about today. It could be markets, investing, economy. What What are you most optimistic and most pessimistic about?
2: Oh, well, I love all of the opportunities that are here today, particularly for factors. What we've been talk, talking mm-hmm. about. And the great advances that we will make to put all those benefits in the hands of consumers and clients. Mm-hmm. What am I pessimistic about? Well, my parents were migrants, really glad my parents migrated and gave me opportunities in Australia and then you know, living here in, in the US. And there's this expression, I got a fair go. And people a took a chance. Go. A fair go. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little pessimistic that there's increasing inequality, lack of mobility. And bottom line is we should be trying to give as many people a fair go.
1: Very, very reasonable. Let's uh, let me get to my two favorite questions. Um, a millennial or someone just beginning their career in finance comes up to you and asks for uh, some advice, what sort of advice would you give them?
2: It's actually advice I give myself. It was given to me by uh, Bob Hodrick, a, a colleague, and co-author, and friend, and he said, "It's not your life. <laughs> I don't presume to to suggest that it's it's uh, your life either." But explain that. Are, give me give me a little more detail. You make your choices. Mm-hmm. Um, my preferences aren't yours, and you go and do what you think is best, and I'll go and support you the best that you can, that, the best I can.
1: That, that's quite intriguing. Um, tell us. For our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today you wish you knew 30 years ago when you were first getting started?
2: I think very often the most important problems in investments are actually not about investing. Really? For for institutions, they're about management structure, governance, and incentives. And for individuals, well, you've had many guests on your show, too, all about tackling investors' behavioral biases. Right. And those sometimes are even more important than the actual investment problem. Sometimes the investment problem is the easy part. Right. right, And then sitting the context of the investment problem in the wider portfolio or the wider structure in someone's family or an institution, that's actually the harder problem.
1: Huh. Quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Andrew Ang. He is the head of factor investing at BlackRock and the author of Asset Management, a systematic approach to factor investing. If you enjoy this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see any of the other 250 such conversations we've had over the past five years. Be sure and check that out. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together. Atika Valbron is our project manager. Michael Boyle is our head of uh, booking slash producing. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters of Business on Bloomberg Radio.